0: When I was a kid, I had the greatest morning routine. Every day of my life, I would wake up and I would watch Sesame Street and then watch Mr. Rogers. And then me and my grandma would spend an hour or more uh, learning. I would work on math or reading or whatever it might be for uh, that period in my life. And then if uh, Mr. Rogers had been good, we would watch... Mr. Rogers again. Now, Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street are two of the best shows when you're a preschool aged child. And my grandma didn't have to work at getting me to watch Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers. That was two of my favorite things to do were watch those two shows. But the learning aspect of my mornings, uh, it took a little convincing on my grandma's part. It wasn't natural for me to go, hey, let's spend an hour or two. Uh, working on flashcards or learning how to do simple math or learning how to read different words. And so my grandma, being a teacher, uh, did a very smart thing. And she created a system that helped me want to spend that time learning. The system was a reward system. And it went like this. Every time that I took a step forward in the learning process, my grandma would give me a gold star. And I would get to take the gold star and put it up on a white uh, board that she had created. And when I got enough of these gold stars, I would get some type of reward. I don't remember what the rewards were now, uh, you know, uh, probably a a new G.I. Joe or a Nerf gun. Uh, But I do remember that getting those gold stars so that someday I could get a reward caused me To work harder at the learning process. It caused me to sit down, even as a preschooler, and really try to learn new things. What's funny is that uh, recently in my marriage, Bryn and I have gone back to this system. Uh, There are certain things that nobody likes to do, Uh, things like exercise or cleaning different parts of the house. And so to make these things more tolerable, Bryn and I have inserted uh, this gold star system into our marriage. And while it's not a sticker anymore, it's actually an iPad app, uh, we get gold stars when we do certain things like vacuuming or putting the dishes away. And when we get enough of these gold stars, we each get reward. For Bryn, it is a night going to a movie. And if you know me really well, then you know that... uh, That isn't a reward that I would have chosen. Uh, For me, it is a camera connection kit for my iPad. What's crazy to me is that 25 years after my grandma pushed me to learn through a gold star system, I see its effectiveness still in my life. At the age of 28 now, I still see that the promise of reward drives me to do things differently and to be consistent about doing things in my own life. Now, I don't think that it is just me who is driven by the promise of reward. I think that you see this uh, in most of humanity. Most people are driven by the promise of reward. And uh, a couple of examples might help you believe me, uh, believe that it's not just me who's driven by rewards. Uh, One of the best and easiest examples is the example of school. Not many people pull overnighters, as they call them, staying up all night to work on a paper or study for a test because it's fun or because they want to. They do it because they know that pulling that all-nighter is going to help them get the degree when they are finished with school. And it's that degree that brings promises. And so these people see the reward, the degree and the promises and the the things that come along with having that degree as a reward. And so they're driven in their current behavior to stay up late and to do good work on the projects that are in front of them. Now, this is also true in the workforce. Uh, I don't know very many people that go to their jobs, that do their jobs because they like it or because it's fun. No, most people go to their places of work, they have their jobs because of the promise of the reward that is called a paycheck. I would go out on a limb, this is not an official statistic, but I would guess that 99% of people here today and in our country would quit their jobs if an employer said, I am no longer going to reward you with a paycheck. And so you see that for most of humanity, most people, uh, there is a consistency where rewards or the promise of reward drives a person's behavior and causes them to do things or to live differently in the present. Even though we see the truth of this all around us, it seems that in the spiritual life, this is sometimes forgotten. Sometimes we forget that the promise of reward should and can drive our spiritual behaviors. In the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, which is Joshua 14, verses 6 through 15, we are going to see the story of a man named Caleb who was driven in his spiritual life by the promise of reward that God had given him. Now, as you open your Bibles up to Joshua 14, 6-14, I want to give you a little background information uh, about this passage of Scripture. Now, the Israelite people were not even the Israelite people where this story really begins. They were the Jewish people, and they were slaves in a country called Egypt. They were slaves there until God set them free from slavery. He did this by sending a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. And finally, Pharaoh allowed the Jewish people to go. The Jewish people wandered in the desert for several weeks until God said to them, I'm going to meet you and I'm going to come through fire on top of a mountain and speak to you. He did that, and on that day, the Jewish people went from just being a people group to being the nation of Israel. As the nation of Israel, God promised these people that they would someday inherit a land, a beautiful and wonderful land. And so God says to them, you are now my nation, my holy people. And out of this, I promise that I am going to give you this great land. And so the Israelite people looked forward to getting this land that God described as fruitful and wonderful and awesome and great and all of these things. And so after hanging out by this mountain for a couple more weeks and uh, basking in the glory of God, the people leave and they start to move towards the promised land. They get right to the edge of it, and they do a smart thing. They send spies in to make sure that they can take the land. There's already people there who are inhabiting it, and so they say, hey, we need to know if we can take over this land. Twelve spies go into the land. All twelve of them come out and say, hey, the land is just as good as God said. There are grapes everywhere and olives, and this is just going to be a great place for us to hang out. But ten of them say, we can't take the land. It's not possible for us to take it because the people who are inhabiting it are too big, too strong, too powerful, too warrior-like. But there are two guys, two spies, who say, I think we can do it. I think that we can do it. I think that God has promised this land to us. And because God has promised this land to us, it doesn't matter how big and how strong and how warrior-like those people are, we can take the land. Those two people's names were Joshua and Caleb. The people of Israel chose to not believe Joshua and Caleb. They believed the other ten spies. They said, oh no, they're too big, they're too strong, they're too powerful. We can't take it. We can't do it. They didn't trust the promise of God. And God doesn't like to not be trusted, and so God said, okay... If you don't trust me to take the land, then I'm never going to let you in your generation enter into this land. And he says, every one of you, every one of the people in this generation is going to die out here in this desert, except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And so the people wander around in the desert for 40 years. Forty years, the Israelite nation is in this desert, and everybody in that generation that didn't believe God dies off, except for Joshua and Caleb. After 40 years and the entire generation being dead and gone, God says, okay, you can enter the land now. And they spend five years battling for the land, and they're victorious because God has promised them the land. And that is where we pick up our story. They have beat up all the guys that are in the land, and they are now looking to set up shop in the land that we call the promised land. And that's where we begin our story in Joshua 14, 6. Now then, the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunah, the Kinezite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? It was 40, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you will follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that, that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he has said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as, in, as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath, Arbo, after Arbo, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then the land found rest from war. Now the passage begins with these men in Judah talking to this guy named Joshua. And there are two things right up front that you need to know about the passage. First of all, first of all Joshua has taken over leadership in the country for Moses. Moses was the leader, the, the head honcho, the big shot, the president, to put it in our American terms, uh, of their country. And he has since died, not entering into the promised land himself. And Joshua has taken over. That is why the men are approaching him to say, hey, uh, can we get this land that, that has been promised to us? The second thing you need to know is that Caleb was from the clan of Judah. He he was part of the tribe of Judah and the Israelites were split up into these 12 tribes, one of them being Judah. And Caleb was from that tribe. That was his family lineage. And so the people of Judah come along with Caleb, but notice that they quickly fall into the background because this story is not a story about the people of Judah getting their inheritance. This is a story about Caleb, the man, and the things that God had promised to him. Now, Caleb begins here. By explaining to Joshua what I have just told you. The story about how he was a spy along with Joshua. Notice that he says, hey, you know what I am about to say. That's because Joshua would have known the story really well, right? He would have known the story as well as anybody. He was there, first of all. He spent 40 years hanging out with Caleb. They were probably pretty good friends, and they were the patriarch, uh, really, uh, of the Israelite nation. They were two patriarchs of the Israelite nation. And, And so he says, hey, you know this story. And we don't need to tell the story again because we already read it, but there are two things that I want to point out, two phrases that I think are pretty important for us to read here. First of all, he says to Joshua, he says, I gave this report according to my convictions. According to my convictions. Now, if you were to to look at this and study this passage, uh, one commentator would, would tell you this, and I told the people what we had really seen. I told the people what we had really seen. You see Joshua is not saying here I told them something. I gave a positive report as a spy because uh, my intuition said that we could do it, that our military was big enough or strong enough. He isn't saying, "Hey, I had I had a hunch feeling that that we could beat those guys even though they had better militaries than us and they were bigger and stronger than us." No, he is saying, "Hey, look, the spy report that I gave was based on the real truth. Caleb knew that God had promised the land to the people. Caleb understood that the land was rightfully theirs and that God would help them. And so when he came back after being a spy and said, hey, we can take it, it wasn't because he saw different people than the rest of the spies. It was because he trusted the Word of God. When Caleb said to those people, hey, we can take this land, it didn't say so much about what he saw And when he reports it to us here, it doesn't say so much about what he said. It it says a lot about who Caleb was. It It says that Caleb was a person who trusted God. Caleb looked at the promise that God had made to them and said, Yeah, if God says that this land is ours and that he is going to give it to us, then it doesn't matter how big and strong and tough the people are who are already living there. We will be able to take the land. He also says to Joshua... I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now, this is actually a whole sentence, but it it translates a Hebrew phrase that literally means to fill behind. One author describes it this way. The heart contains nothing against Yahweh. It is fully, completely following behind the Lord. What allowed for Caleb to trust in the promise of God and to give God uh, the, the respect and the trust that he needed to give that report was that Caleb was following God wholeheartedly. His heart was totally and utterly in line with God. His desire was to do the will of God without ever swerving from that, without ever turning in a different direction. He wanted to do what God wanted to do, and he wanted to be the person that God wanted him to be. If you look in Deuteronomy 1.36, you would see that the promise that was made to Caleb was based on this wholehearted devotion to God. Deuteronomy 1.36 Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he will see it. And I will give him and the descendants the land that he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The same is true in Numbers fourteen twenty four, which is the story that I just told you about him being a spy. When God makes this promise to him, this is what he says. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. You see that God is saying, I am not just giving you this land because I'm not making you this promise because you have given a good report. I'm giving it to you because the report was based on your wholehearted devotion to me. If you look at this passage of scripture that we're studying today, three times it says wholehearted devotion when describing Caleb. In verse 9, Caleb quotes God. And he says this, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. He's saying, Joshua, I deserve this land because God promised it to me based on my wholehearted devotion to him. Notice verse 14, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Caleb is not saying that he deserves this inheritance because he gave a good report. Caleb is saying that he deserves this inheritance because he is a person who God promised it to because of his wholehearted devotion to him. That is what Caleb is saying to us. Now, if you were to move on to verse 10, we would read this. Now, then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. Caleb is now 85 years old. Let's do the math. He's 40 years old when he goes into the land as a spy. They spend 40 years wandering in the desert. That equals 80, right? And then they spend five years battling for the land. And so Caleb is now an 85-year-old man still waiting for the promises of God. And it says here that he is old and he is decrepit and he's struggling and he's bored and he's just waiting to die and and letting all the young people do all the good ministry, right? Right? No, that's not what it says. Verse 11 says this, I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now, let's be honest here. There's probably some hyperbole here, right? I mean, we don't read anything in any of the stories about a promise to Caleb that he is going to age uh, differently than the rest of the world. There is no record of a supernatural aging process for Caleb. And so we have to look at this and say, probably Caleb is talking more about what is going on inside than what is going on outside. Now, he may have aged supernaturally. We don't know that. We can't know that that, we weren't there. That's a possibility. But we need to recognize that at least spiritually, Caleb is still just as vigorous and just as strong as he was before. And one of the reasons that I I think we, we need to see the spiritual aspect of this is that Caleb says he is just as vigorous to go out to battle now as he was then. And for the Israelite people, battle was extremely spiritual. Now you say, well, How can battle be spiritual? That almost seems wrong. Well, the Israelite people saw uh, God as their God, and and God saw it that way too. They were his people. And so when they went to fight, they were in essence fighting for the glory and honor of God. And I can't describe it to you perfectly. I can't give you a single verse that sums it up. But probably the best description comes through the story of David and Goliath. It's a story that most of us know, but uh, let me tell it to you in case you don't. Uh, The Philistines and the Israelites were waging a battle against each other, except they weren't doing any fighting. Uh, The Israelites were on this hill over here and the Philistines were on this hill over here. And in between them was a big ravine and nobody wanted to give up their high ground and go get the low ground. That's a bad move in battles. Right. And, And so Goliath, this guy who was a giant and a Philistine, goes down into the middle and says, hey, got a solution for you. I will fight you one-on-one. I'm eight feet tall and really, really strong. Uh, But if you'll send one of your guys down here, then we can duke it out. The winner takes all. We won't have to kill all these people in battle. We can solve this one-on-one. Now, he's saying this out loud and he's talking to the Israelite army. And about that same time, David, who becomes the king of Israel, but at that time is just a shepherd, wanders up to give his brothers food who are part of the Israelite army. And David hears what Goliath is saying, and he says, I'll fight him. If this guy's going to taunt our army, then I'll go fight him. And so, uh, long story short, David is on the battlefield with his slingshot waiting to fight Goliath. And Goliath starts yelling at him, you little dog, I'm going to kill you. You are nothing. Look how huge I am and how uh, puny you are. And, And he mocks David. And David's response shows us how spiritualized battle was for the Israelite people. This is what he says to Goliath right before he kills him. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give your carcasses... I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David knew what Caleb knew, that battles were spiritual. And so when Caleb says he's just as vigorous to go out to battle, it's not because he's bloodthirsty. It's not because he's arrogant. It's not because he wants a war. It's because he wants to honor and glorify and worship the God of the Israelite people who is the God of the world. You see it in the next verse, verse 12. He says, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. And he's talking about the Anakites. The Israelites and the Anakites had a a really long history. Going way back before, the Israelites were the Israelites. They were just the Jewish people. And the Anakites had been driven out of the promised land one time, but they had now come back. And they were also giant-like. They were very big men. But God, was, God didn't want them there. And the Israelite people were supposed to drive them out. That was part of the will of God. And so when Caleb says, with the help of the Lord, I will drive them out, what he is saying is, with the help of the Lord, I will do God's will, and I will further the kingdom of God on this earth. And so Caleb, whether he was supernaturally aged or not, is not saying first and foremost, that his body was just in great shape. He is saying that at 85 years old, he is just as passionate about wholeheartedly serving God as he was at 40 years old. In those 45 years, his devotion to God had not changed one bit. Caleb is is really a person who who shows us how to age well. He he is a perfect example uh, of of the aging process, something that we are talking about here for the last several weeks in our church. And let me tell you what Caleb shows us about aging well. He shows us that in a moment in time, he believed God. The world told him something different, that that they couldn't kill these guys, that they couldn't conquer the land, but he chose to believe God. And he chose to believe God and give him his wholehearted devotion. He said, God, I'm going to believe your promises. And because of that, I'm going to do your will in my life, in all of my life, even if it costs me my life. And because of that wholehearted devotion, God made Caleb a promise. He said, you someday will inherit the very land that you were a spy to. All of those grapes and all of those olives and all the great stuff that you saw, someday that will be yours because you have chosen to give your life to me wholeheartedly. And then Caleb puts that promise in the forefront of his mind. And until the point of our story, that promise is the driving force in his life. And it helps him to continue to wholeheartedly and vigorously serve God because he knows what someday he is going to get. Do you see that? What's really cool is that that this this, uh, example of Caleb applies perfectly to the Christian life. The Christian life gives us the same process for aging well. It says to us, the God of the universe saw us in our sins and our wrongdoings, and so he came down to this earth to die for those sins so that we could have a relationship with him. The world says God doesn't exist. The world says God doesn't interact with humans on that level. The world says our sins are too big for God to forgive us. The world says, really, could a God care about us that much? And people, humans, have a choice. They can choose to say, I am going to believe what God said, that he came here and died on a cross to save people from their sins. Or they can choose to believe what the world has said. If people choose to say, I believe God, then the only real response to that type of grace, a God that would come here to save people, is wholehearted devotion. And when we become Christians, we say, I'm going to give my life wholeheartedly to Jesus because Jesus gave his life for me. If we choose to do that in a moment in time, a moment that some people call accepting Jesus, some people call it becoming a Christian, some people call it asking God into our hearts, but whatever we call it, if we choose to do that and we choose to give our lives to God because we believe what he has said, then God says, I'm going to promise you certain things. And he promises us a whole bunch of stuff, but nothing more than eternal life in heaven. Now, heaven is not a place that that we know a lot about, according to Scripture. But we know enough about it to be excited. Heaven is a place that, that will not have any pain, any death, any sorrow, any tears, or any hurt. Heaven is a place that will be beyond anything that we can describe or think of when we look at our world. Heaven will be a place that is full of celebration because it is so awesome. Heaven will be a place where we get to spend eternity with God in his perfect presence. Heaven will be a place that will cause us to party. Uh, That's what the Bible tells us throughout because it is so exciting and so awesome. And when we say, I believe you, God, I believe that you came to die for my sins. And we say, God, out of that, I will give you my life. Then we have those promises. And here it is. If we want to age well, then we must, put at the forefront of our minds those promises and we must let it drive our behavior for the rest of our lives. It is not that we try to earn our way into heaven. It is, in fact, that we have heaven in our views and it drives the way that we live our lives right now. Paul demonstrated this attitude. He demonstrated it um, maybe better than anybody that we can describe. 1 Corinthians 9, through 26 Paul says this, Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike blows to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Further, near the end of his life, his zealousness for God continues on the basis of the promises that he has in the Lord. And in 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 8, he says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. It was Paul's trust in the promises of God that allowed him to serve God until the very end of his life. It wasn't just that that he was a better person than us or something. It was that he looked so longingly for the reception of his full full promises that God had made to him, that his life was forever changed. Paul and Caleb, though, are are not the only examples of this. Uh, Cecil Sims is another example of this friend of mine, uh, somebody that uh, is in large part responsible for this church being here today, uh, uh, a man that is a hero to me, really. And when you look at the life of Cecil, you see this vigorousness right up until the end, right? Uh, In fact, just weeks before he passed away a month ago, uh, he was still vigorously talking about how he wanted to preach again. Now, Cecil was a great guy, but Cecil didn't have anything that we can't have in Jesus. He just accepted Christ at a very young age, and from that age on, he looked forward to the promise that he would someday receive. And so even into the end of his life, when he was suffering with cancer and struggling, he still was passionate about serving God. See, there's examples all around us, but it's not always the way it goes, right? People don't always continue into old age in their Their zealousness for God. In fact, many old people or older people or aging people say, well, I've served my time. I've done what I need to do. I did my church work and now let me leave it up to the young people. Even in the the non-Christian world, we see the same thing, right? People get old, they get tired, they get lazy and they say, well, I'm retired now. I'm not going to accomplish anything else. But whether it be in the secular world or the Christian world, we see this all around us. But it's not how it has to be. If we will give our lives to Jesus, uh, then we, then we, if we, if we give our lives to Jesus and serve Him wholeheartedly, can know those promises are coming. And if we will put them at the forefront of our minds, then we can serve God. Now, what's cool about God's grace is, is it's not something that we have to earn. No. It's not. God's grace is is better than gold stars, and God's grace is better uh, than a paycheck, and God's grace is better than a diploma, and that's because God's grace, the gift that he gave us on the cross when he died to save us from our sins fills our sinful hearts with an infinite amount of gold stars. It covers everything that we have done wrong as people. And so it is not that we strive to gain gold stars. It is that we recognize that the gold stars of Jesus' death on the cross have saved us. And if we will give our lives to him and believe in that, then we will start to wholeheartedly serve him. And if we start to wholeheartedly serve him, then he has promises for us, a promise of eternal life in heaven. And if we will, Put that at the forefront of our minds. Then at every age we are at, we will age well. And when we get older, we will continue to be vigorous about serving God like, like Caleb was because we know what is coming for us. And so I would hope for you and for I that we would accept Jesus. We would believe that, that he did die for our sins. We would give him our lives wholeheartedly. And, and we would put at the forefront of our minds every single day Every single day, the fact that because of our relationship with God, we someday will spend eternity with Him in perfect, awesome heaven. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank You that it's not just Caleb who had an inheritance to look forward to, but it is every person who has chosen to trust in Your gracious gift, God. I ask, Lord, that for us as a people we would put that promise at the forefront of our mind the promise that someday we will spend eternity with you, God, in a place that is undescribable, God. So undescribable that, that you didn't spend much time in your, your own word describing it for us, God. You just told us that it's going to be awesome beyond anything we can describe or think of now, Lord ask God that for anybody in this room who has chosen to believe the lies of this world and not the truth of you that that they would change and they would know Lord that if they want to age well if they want to move forward in life in a positive productive way then it's got to start with with believing that you came to save them Lord for those of us who have believed that let us continue in wholehearted devotion to you God Sometimes we stray from that, Lord. We don't line up right behind you, but uh, we kind of line up behind you and kind of do our own thing, Lord. But let us wholeheartedly, God, be in line with your will and what you desire for our lives, God. And out of that, Lord, let us put your promises in our minds and let us think about them daily, God. Let us think about them all of the time, God, that someday we get to spend eternity in heaven. It's pretty awesome, Lord. Let that drive our behavior, God, as as I trust it will. Thank you for this passage of Scripture and for the love that you have for us, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.